Thank you, Pastor Ross. Good evening, friends, and thank you for coming back again for this important presentation tonight in the Panorama of Prophecy. I want to welcome those who are joining us on television or the internet or uh, land-based stations and satellite stations. We're just so thankful that we can greet our international audience as well. Good That's evening, right. Mrs. B. Good evening to you. Are you ready? We're going to do our best to cover as many as we can. All right, here we go. Can you please give me the scripture for Jesus activating the sanctuary in the most holy place after his resurrection and then continuing his ministry in the holy place until 1844? Yes, I believe I can. Uh, first, let me explain. Some people maybe did not catch the presentation where we talked about the sanctuary, how important that is to Bible prophecy. The vision of Revelation takes place in this heavenly sanctuary, as does part of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. And so we did a whole study on the sanctuary and its services. We explained Jesus is our high priest. You find that through the book of Hebrews. When he ascended to heaven, he went directly into the presence of the Father in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly sanctuary, which is infinitely bigger than the model on earth. But... After he ascended, you remember when Mary went to grab him by the feet? He said, do not cling to me. This is John 21. I have not yet ascended to my father. At that moment, he hadn't even been to heaven yet. He went to heaven. His sacrifice, his life were all declared victorious in behalf of man. Then he comes back down to earth again. So when he went the first time, he went and he showed his hands and his blood. And it really activated the heavenly sanctuary. After his 40 days meeting with the disciples following his resurrection, he then ascended to heaven and he continued his work for us as our high priest, doing the same kind of intercession that the earthly high priest did, or the earthly high priest is really imitating what Jesus was doing. But the heavenly sanctuary wasn't really activated yet because without the shedding of blood, there's nothing to do. See what I'm saying? As far as pleading the blood. So I've got a verse here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse um, 19. 19, yes. And this, this helps us understand that. Verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with the blood the tabernacle and all the vessels in the ministry. You know, it's like he christened it with blood or activated it. So there's two times that someone went into the sanctuary on earth. Once, the Day of Atonement, at the end of the Jewish year, but the other time was when they first built it and they basically activated it. When Christ first ascended to heaven, he went into the Holy of Holies before the Father to plead his blood, and then he continued going through what we would call like the daily ministration of our high priest. 1844, we sort of entered the last phase called the Day of Atonement, cleansing the sanctuary in heaven. And is there a sanctuary on earth? Yes. Cleansing his people, too. A new movement was born at that time. Okay. So, by the way, uh, Paul here is quoting what happened in Exodus when Moses activated the earthly tabernacle. Okay. Can angels come to us as a person? And can we see or talk to them? Well, yeah, there's many times in the Bible that angels have appeared to people. And Paul tells us in Hebrews, some have entertained angels unaware. And you've got a number of times in the Bible where angels appeared to um, uh, Joseph, 
and they guided him. Angels appeared to Mary in the New Testament. They appeared to Daniel in the Old Testament. Just lots of examples appeared to the wife of Manoah, uh, Gideon. Uh, so you've got uh, a lot of angelic intervention. I've got a whole s- series of sermons I do on angels. It's amazing to me how often they appear, these ministering spirits of God. And I would I would bet that at some point in your life you have seen an angel unawares. Um, they can appear as men. When they came to uh, Sodom, it says two men appeared. You know, and many times the angels came and at first they didn't even know they were angels. So, yeah, I believe we have guardian angels. I think there's not only guardian angels, the Bible indicates there's recording angels. Everything we do and everything we say is recorded. Jesus said we'll give an account for every idle word. I don't know if the guardian angels also do the recording, kind of like the police with their cam cam recorders going. <laughs> but yeah, we've got at least one angel watching over us, and some of us need more than one. Well, so that, and that's different than having a dead relative come to you in the form of an angel. Yeah, that, nothing in the Bible says that when someone dies, they come back as an angel. Angels are a whole different species. God creates angels. People are born. The Bible says man is made a little lower than the angels. They're just they're different creatures, you might say. All right. So we don't always know when we're talking to one. Correct. Okay. Can you please review what is the mark of the beast? Yeah, very simply, we, we shared in our presentation, first of all, we talked about the seal of God. Mm-hmm. When it talks about in the hand and in the forehead, it's talking about having the law of God in our hand and in our thoughts. We gave you Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it talks about that and several other passages of scripture. Um, if we have the f- first thing that's the seal of God is having the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in more detail tonight. The second thing is going to be that in the law of God, it says, bind the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. In the law of God, or the law of God in our hearts, and but within the law of God, there's one commandment that is called holy, and that's the fourth commandment. It says, remember to keep the Sabbath holy. Got holiness there. Well, Mark of the Beast is just the converse of that. It is a counterfeit spirit. It's the spirit of the devil. It is a counterfeit man-made law, and it's a counterfeit Sabbath. Now, does anyone have the mark of the beast now? What did we learn? No. No, because that doesn't happen until there's actually a law made telling people to worship man's law instead of God's law. Did we learn last night what the beast is? Yes. The beast of Bible prophecies very clearly. All the Protestants believed it was the Roman Catholic Church. And do they admit that they freely changed some of the laws of God? including the Sabbath day, the day of worship, and some of the other Ten Commandments. Okay. In Numbers 12, God stroked Miriam with leprosy. Does this mean God can or will send terminal illnesses like cancer and diabetes to us if we disobey him? Well, he can. Uh, You know, he did that with um, Gehazi, was the servant of Naaman, and he Um, became... He was the servant of Elijah. Thank you. Gehazi was a servant of Elijah, and when he tried to take money from Naaman, he was struck with leprosy because of his greed. Now, you can argue and say, well, maybe what the Lord did is the Lord withdrew his protection and the devil struck him. And, you know, this is what happened. God withdrew his protection from Job, and the devil struck Job with sickness, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it might be the devil that's actually doing it, but God is choosing to withdraw his protection. Marion was struck with leprosy. Sometimes as a judgment, people get sick. Sometimes as a test of faith, people get sick. And so they can turn to the Lord for healing. Uh, you know, Jesus sometimes said that it was for the glory of God that something happened. 
Paul had an uh, affliction. Paul said, the devil is afflicting me. He asked God to take it away, and God said, no, this is for your good so you don't become puffed up. Hmm. So when you start saying, now, who do you blame for this? The Bible tells us that God can send violent weather. Mm -hmm. There's examples in the Bible. The flood would be exhibit A. And the Bible talks about the devil sending thunderstorms and tornadoes to Job's family. So when we get there, we'll start asking who caused what as far as uh, some of these judgments. Uh, I think the seven last plagues are judgments coming from God. You can't escape that. And uh, But sometimes it's God withdrawing his protection and the devil does it. Yeah, sometimes it's just the consequences of choices sure. that we make in the sinful world we live in. And yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of victims in Satan's plan, isn't there? Can we perform miracle? Um, yeah, can we perform miracles today, as in the apostles' time? Well, I'm not going to claim to be able to do that right now. But uh, will there be miracles in the last days, as in the days of the apostles? I believe so. Yeah. When God poured out His Spirit at Pentecost, part of our study this evening. Um, we saw a great increase in signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus told the apostles, these signs and wonders and miracles that I have done, greater things than these will you do because I go to the Father. Did the disciples heal the sick? Yes. Did they cast out devils? Did they raise the dead? Yes. All of those things happened. But it seemed like as the disciples passed off the scene and the church started to um, you know, grow just through the power of the word, you don't see so many of those extraordinary miracles. Now, I believe I've seen miracles in my life. I've not seen someone missing an eyeball have it suddenly appear. That kind of miracle. Or someone who'd been dead for four days come back to life. But I've seen a lot of providential miracles That's in my right. life. And I think I've seen and experienced some what I would call miraculous healing. Um, I remember one day I was getting ready to do a seminar like this. Mm -hmm. We'd spent a lot of money preparing and I woke up that morning just as sick as a dog. I won't go into the details, but trust me, it was ugly. And uh, and I prayed and I said, Lord, you're going to have to heal me because I'm going down fast. I can't stand up and preach feeling like this. Everybody had planned this program. We'd sent out all the flyers. We rented the building. And I just was really sick. And I heard this voice say to me, I know you can think this is strange, a strong impression. It wasn't a voice. Go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and eat some mashed potatoes. <laughs> I had never, ever done that. I don't go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Ask her that. Have we ever been to Kentucky Fried Chicken? You haven't, but I have. Oh, oh that just came out. <laughs> I don't know. In Taiwan, they have mashed potatoes and corn, so it was something so I, I could eat. I went and I got a little pint of, what do they call it, of mashed potatoes. I ate that, and I just felt instantly better, and I preached that night. And Amen. I thought it was a miracle. You know, God healed Hezekiah with figs. He healed me with mashed potatoes from Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> but it's a miracle. Well, I think there are a lot of miracles that happen that we take for granted and that we just think are regular things. But um, we've had church members healed of stage four cancer. And we've Absolutely. had other, a lot of miracles that transpire, maybe not so many here in the States, um, but in four yeah. other countries around the world, there's healings that take place. Absolutely. Yeah, we have seen. Yeah, we had this one sister that uh, she was on life support. I met with the family at the hospital to work on her services. Her, they said, well, can you pray for mom before you leave? And I prayed and I said in my prayer, Lord, we know that you can heal her if you choose. I didn't even believe it myself. Yeah. They called me later and said, mom sat up. They took off the apparatus. She said, I'm hungry and she is still alive today. This has been 10 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, it was a miracle. It really was. I Yeah. 
Yeah, anyway, yes, the Lord does perform miracles even today. Have the four horses of the apocalypse still to happen before Jesus returns? The four horsemen of the apocalypse are the, um, they're the first four of the seven seals of Revelation. And they are in the past. Now we've learned that the prophecies in Revelation, they come in sets. You get the seven churches, you get the seven seals, you get the seven plagues, you get the seven trumpets. Most of those prophecies are talking about a panorama of history from the first coming to the second coming. The four horsemen, last one being the pale horse, they believe that was when the Black Death hit Europe. And there was a lot of death and spiritual death that was in the church during that time. And then there have been other seals since then. Uh, we haven't come to the last seal because the last seal is open and it's a great earthquake and Jesus comes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yes, the four horsemen are behind us. That first white horse was the early church going forth to conquer. The gospel spread very quickly. I don't have time to go through the other three right now. Okay. I'm a teenager and my friends and I usually tease each other using bad words. We usually do not mean what we say. Is it a sin to speak bad words mocking each other for fun? Well, two things I see intrinsically wrong with that. One is they're bad, and two, you don't mean it. Don't say what you don't mean, and don't say bad things. Yeah. Bible says that our speech should be pure, seasoned with grace. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Sometimes kids, uh, they feel a little bit liberated and rebellious when they can say dirty words. And, you know, friends, it's a different world we're living in now. When I was a kid, you never heard people say some of the words that uh, are considered foul. Now they say them on TV. I'm walking down the street. You're hearing 10 year old kids saying things mm-hmm. that just, you know, make a sailor blush. And, uh, we'll give an account for what we say. We want our words to be pure. Amen. Yeah. So you need to stop that. Just <laughs> the kids that are mother, watching India. From a mother to you, you need to stop that. Okay. Um, can we talk to Jesus in prayer or do we only pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus? Well, typically in the Bible, the prayers are made to the Father in the name of Christ. But there are examples where you have a couple of people I can think of that prayed to Jesus. Stephen, when he was being stoned, he prayed and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he he could see uh, Jesus actually at that time. And uh, the very last verses in the New Testament, even so come Lord Jesus, is a prayer to Christ. So uh, there's nothing wrong with praying to Jesus. A lot of the letters are sort of dedicated with uh, benedictions using the name of Jesus. Typically, we're asking God the Father, who's portrayed as the ultimate authority. See, it's God the Father that commits all judgment and creation to the Son. It seems like he's got the ultimate authority, but they're all equal in power, in their omniscience, in their omnipotence. And... um, so Christ says, you know, in this manner pray, our Father. Mm-hmm. We direct our prayers to the Father in the name of Christ for the sake of Jesus. But you can pray to Jesus. He's not going to not listen to you because yeah. you said his name. And then, you know, some people pray to the Holy Spirit. And I don't see anything wrong with it. Don't pray to your angels. Because there's an angel in Revelation that says, don't worship me. That's right. So we direct our prayers to God. God will send angels to help you. But we direct our prayers to God. Can you tithe annually, or do you have to tithe weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly? That's a good practical question. We talked about uh, Christian stewardship and tithe. So do you do it once a year? I know some people that do. Um, problem with that is, we, you know, 
The Bible says, withhold not good to whom it's due when it is in the power of your hand to do it. Meaning, if you got someone working for you, you don't say, well, I'll pay you at the end of the year. It's easier for me. Right. Well, they may need it before then. And um, I wouldn't want to die six months into the year knowing that I've robbed God for six months because I died before I could pay it. Yeah. So I'd say keep short accounts. Do you get your paycheck once a year? No. And should God get his once a year? <laughs> so I'd say when you get it, it's his money. Give it to him. Pay right. it. Just, uh, it's his tithe. It's not really yours. So you want to pay it to him. I was baptized as an infant and have no recollection of the baptism. When I was 30, I was baptized in a lake by immersion. Is this a biblical baptism? And now that I have learned more about the Bible, should I be baptized again? Well, it is, if you're baptized in a lake by immersion, it is biblical. Some people think, you know, do you have to be baptized in a church baptistry? Uh, does it, you know, some people say marriage isn't valid unless it's in a church. You want it to be sanctified. And the Bible doesn't really teach that. I think the first marriage was in a garden. Yes. The way I read my Bible. Uh, you can get baptized in a river. Jesus was. You can get baptized in a lake. Someone said, can you do it in the sea? It's not fresh water. It's immersion in water. You can get baptized in the ocean. I've never seen anything that says otherwise. The symbolism is all there. Um, so if you're baptized by immersion and you want to join the church, you can join a church by what they call profession of faith. And I believe the teachings and I would like to be baptized. But if you want to, you can be rebaptized. Yeah, man, we, we talked about that in our lesson. Nothing wrong with choosing rebaptism. I'd say talk to the pastor. All right. I'm looking for the one I want. Oh, here it is. Does God forgive those who commit suicide and will they go to heaven? Uh, that's a difficult question. Yes. Um, it's difficult because there's two groups I'm speaking to. One is there are some people who are depressed and thinking of suicide all the time. The last thing in the world you want to tell them is, sure, kill yourself and you'll go to heaven. Because the truth is that suicide is usually a case of faithlessness and hopelessness. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And killing is a sin. And if the last act of your life is self-murder, that does not bode well for your fate. But I need to stop short of saying that everybody who commits suicide is lost. Technically, you could say uh, Samson, rather, was... Well, Judas was a suicide, but he's not going to make it. Samson was a suicide. Mm -hmm. And the last act of his life is being filled with the Spirit of God. And so in Hebrews 11, it tells us Samson will be in heaven. You know, there was repentance in what he did. And he really, he kind of died to defeat the enemies of God's people. But um, there's also some cases where a person commits suicide and there's, there's a chemical imbalance. We don't always know the circumstances. They're under some attack that we can't comprehend. I've met people that are going through such physical pain that they tried to take their life. They told me later, I was in so much pain, I was not in my right mind. And God looks on the heart. I'm thankful to say God is going to be just. But suicide for most people, if you think it's going to improve your circumstances, it will permanently seal very bad circumstances. So choose life. Amen. 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 All right. So our last question. Is it worshiping an idol when we say the Pledge of Allegiance? I don't think so. I know there's some churches that teach that if you say a Pledge of Allegiance, it's like you're worshiping the flag of your country. Uh, having some loyalty or patriotism towards your country, especially if your country, like America, with all of its warts and problems, we've been around the world, we have freedom here still to practice our religion, at least for a little while, mm-hmm. and that's something for which to be thankful. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, people are not, not too many people are trying to escape from America. 
A lot of people in the world are trying to escape out of their countries and come to America. Mm -hmm. So appreciating those freedoms and, uh, you know, saying that you've got some patriotism and uh, pledging allegiance to those principles, as long as there's no conflict with the principles of God, uh, there's, I don't see, I've never had, uh, felt a moral dilemma is there. If you do, well, follow the Holy Spirit. We don't want to encourage you otherwise. That's right. Thank you very much. All right. Amen. Thank you so much, Kelly and John. And that's our subject tonight, talking about the sweet Holy Spirit. We're so glad to see each of you here. Again, want to welcome those who are joining us for the Panorama of Prophecy. And tonight's study is, I believe, one of the most important, dealing with the subject of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the necessity of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, and it is a prophecy subject. As we enter into our study, let me just have prayer with you again, if I might. Father in heaven, we're venturing on holy ground right now as we talk about the subject of God the Spirit. And I just pray that you'll be with me, that you'll be with each of us. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, that reference I just quoted in my prayer is from the book of Revelation. Jesus says, give us ears to hear. May he have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We are living in the last days and we need to listen to God's Spirit speaking to us through God's Word. Well, we're going to begin with, as we always do, a story in the Bible that kind of provides a good springboard and segue into the subject. The Bible is a storybook and the stories all tell us something about these doctrinal teachings. Now, you find the story, our lesson, of course, tonight is dealing with the miraculous oil. And you find the story in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Elisha was a prophet who was filled with a double portion of Elijah's spirit. That's important because you read about John the Baptist who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. First one who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah is Elisha. Another name sounds similar. Elisha's name is very much like the name of Jesus. Jesus is Yahshua, meaning Jehovah is Savior. Elisha's name is El Shua, meaning Elohim, God is Savior. Very similar name. And he ministered among a lot of the uh, sons of the prophets there in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Bible tells this touching story where one day this woman came to Elijah. She was a young mother. And she said, uh, Elisha, the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves because my husband died. He left us in debt and uh, he's taken everything and I have nothing left. See, in Bible times, if you were in debt uh, and you couldn't pay your debts, you could not file chapter 7 or chapter 13 or chapter 11 and just say, well, I guess I'm bankrupt and just go on with your life. Your creditor had the right to come and a little by little take your possessions from you. And this woman was married to a young man who was of the sons of the prophets and he borrowed some money, probably for a home and the farm and to buy seed and the crop failed or something happened and he couldn't pay. He died prematurely. And all of a sudden she was in this massive debt and the creditor would come and say, where's the next payment? She said, well, I just don't have it right now. And he'd go and he'd roll up the carpet and take it with him. 
He'd come back a few weeks later and say, where's my next payment? I, I just don't have the money right now. He'd take the table and the chairs, and then he took the beds. And little by little, he's looting everything until all she's got left is her son's. And she knows if she can't make the payment, he has the right to take her children to be his slaves until they've worked off the debt. I know it's hard for you and I to imagine, but that's how they did things back then. So Elisha said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, what do you have? You know, God often refers us back to what we do have. We always think about what we don't have. You remember when uh, the disciples said, we need to send the people away. We have nothing to feed them. And Jesus said, well, what do you have? Well, we got two two loaves of bread and, uh, what is it, two fish and five loaves of bread. And, and the Lord said, bring to me what you do have. Watch what happens. You consecrate what you do have to God. He can work miracles. And so he said, tell you what, what do you have? She said, I haven't got anything. All, all we've got left is a little jar of oil, because oil was really an important commodity. They used oil for cooking. They used oil for healing. They used oil to start and burn their fires and keep the light in their dwellings. And um, for beauty, they would anoint with oil. She said, oh, I've got a little cruise of oil left. He said, okay, here's what you do. Go through your community and start borrowing vessels. And he said, don't borrow just a few said, borrow empty vessels. You bring them into your house, shut the door, and start pouring the oil out. And she did that, and she and her sons went up and down the street, and the neighbors all knew she was in trouble, and she asked if she could have an empty pot. They gave her all these empty pots, and some were new, and some were old, and some were tall, and some were short, and some were fat, and some were thin. She brought them all in, all different colors, and and she said, bring me the little cruise of oil. And she started to pour, and it coming, and it kept coming, and it kept coming. And uh, it would fill one vessel and it kept pouring out just like a magic trick. It's a miracle. The oil just kept coming until she had filled this room full of vessels with this expensive olive oil. And she said to Elisha, we filled them all, now what? He said, go sell it, pay your debt, and live off the rest. There was a surplus. You know, Jesus does a miracle as often a surplus. It says in Psalm 23, your, your cup runs over. And when Jesus multiplied the bread, were there leftovers? More than they started with. God often blesses you to overflowing. So what does that oil represent? That oil is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And what does a woman represent in Bible analogies? A church. And here this woman has her children. They would be like the members. And they go through the community. They bring these empty vessels. What is a vessel? The Bible says, he is the potter, we are the clay, we are vessels. I'll show that to you in the study tonight. Brings them into her home, pours the oil out, and there's an overflow. By the way, one of the best ways for you to stay full of the Holy Spirit is to pour out what you do have. And also remember, God does not fill full pots. He fills empty ones. We come to the Lord, we humble ourselves, and he can fill you. We empty ourselves and he can fill us. Amen? So, with that background, we're going to go and get into our study for tonight with question number one. In the Bible, what is symbolized by a vessel and the oil? These two things we're going to explore here. And I want to give you the scriptures now. You read in Acts 9, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, the Lord told Ananias, Go, he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine. Did God fill Paul with the Holy Spirit? Did he do a great work through him? Yes, he did. And what does that oil represent? You remember when David was anointed, 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil 
and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That oil is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The word Christ means anointed. That's why when you hear that they christen a ship, they usually take a bottle of champagne. It should be olive oil, but they take champagne. And that means it's kind of inaugurated. The word Messiah is Hebrew for anointed. And when someone was filled with the Holy Spirit, it draws from that symbol where they would pour the oil on the head of the king or the high priest that they might be led by the Spirit of the Lord as they were the ruler or the priest for the people. But God wants all of his people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Quick story. God told Moses when he was going through the wilderness, I want you to bring the 70 elders of Israel. Not only did Moses have 12 princes, there were 70 elders. You know, Jesus had 12 apostles and 70 disciples. Same numbers as Moses. And Moses was told by the Lord, bring the 70 elders and gather there near the tabernacle before me. And um, I'm going to take up the spirit that's on you. I'm going to give it to them that they can help you to administrate and delegate and that they'll have wisdom. And the Bible says that God took the spirit of Moses and poured it on these 70 elders and they all began to prophesy. And when Joshua, Moses' servant, saw this, he said, Moses, forbid them. They're prophesying like you. They're teaching like you. And, and he said, don't forbid them. He said, would God that all of his people were prophets? It's an interesting story. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just a New Testament phenomenon. It happened all the way back there in Exodus. Or I, that was actually, I think, in Numbers. So it happens in the Old Testament as well. The Holy Spirit did not suddenly appear in the New Testament. David prays in Psalm 51, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Indeed, Samson, before he killed Philistines or lions, says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Amen? Over and over you'll hear that. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And God's Spirit works in your life even before you're a Christian. It's the Spirit of God that works to convert you, that leads you to the Lord. But he wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You must have more than the conviction of the Holy Spirit to get to heaven. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just being baptized, which is your choice. It's being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've been emphasizing this along the way. So I think you've got that point now. Number two, is the Holy Spirit an impersonal force or is he God? Now this is really important because some people think the Holy Spirit is just the electricity, the power that God uses, that it's an impersonal force at the disposal of God like a machine or something. Now the Holy person, Holy Spirit is a person. Let me give you a few verses here. Acts chapter 5 verse 3. When Ananias and his wife Sapphira lied to God, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. He said, When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. This is God the Spirit. Look in Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve. Grieve means pain. Uh, uh, impersonal force does not feel pain. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's some other verses in here that help us to understand that uh, the Holy Spirit is not just a force, but is a person, member of the Godhead. Jesus says in John 16, verse 6 through 8, Because I've said these things, you sorrow, and sorrows filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. 
But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And look at verse 13. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of himself, but whatever he hears, that will he, he will speak and show you things to come. And I could just stop right now and do a study for the next 45 minutes showing you verses in the Bible that demonstrate that all of the attributes of a person the Holy Spirit possesses except the physical body. And that's what throws us. We always think of a person as embodied somehow. If I say, close your eyes and picture Jesus, something will pop into your mind, usually based on some artist's concept, right? But if I say, now picture the Holy Spirit, you'll get this ethereal idea of leaves or wind or fire or water. He's hard for us to picture, but he is real. He's here now. He's speaking to your heart as I talk. Because the Holy Spirit is there to accentuate the word of God at all times. Number three, what is the primary work of the Holy Spirit? I actually just quoted this verse, but it bears repeating. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will tell you things to come. These prophecies that we're looking at, they're given by the spirit. He will tell you things to come. And he guides you into all truth. It goes on to say in John 14, 26, he will teach you and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Often before I preach, and more so as I get older, I say, Lord, I read my Bible every day, but sometimes I forget. Am I alone or do you have the same problem? I say, when I'm preaching, help me remember the things that I've studied before in sharing with others. You know, I don't use a lot of notes and uh, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring things to my mind. And he does. He promises that he'll help us remember. The Holy Spirit will not help you remember what you've never read. So you got to start reading your Bibles and then he'll bring those things to mind when you need them. And you'll be amazed how often the very day you need a verse, you've read it that morning. Or someone you're talking to needs a Bible promise, you read it that morning. The Holy Spirit arranges those divine appointments. Something else we should remember about the Holy Spirit. Some people say, well, Pastor Doug, I know you talk about the Ten Commandments. That's the old letter of the law. I follow the Spirit. And the Spirit's telling me, I don't need to keep the commandments anymore. Will the Holy Spirit ever tell you something different than the Word of God? No, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to reinforce and point to the Word. The Holy Spirit is never, ever, ever, never, ever, 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 never, never in conflict with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is always going to support the Word of God. And yet I've heard Christians and pastors say, well, that's in the Old Testament. That was the old letter of the law. But now we're led by the Spirit. We don't need the letter. And it's like they're dismissing Scripture, saying, but oh, I've got a Spirit. And it's telling me something different. It's very dangerous. Because some people think they got the Holy Spirit and they've got indigestion. they got something else. There's all kinds of things that you could feel. And, you know, the, the devil can give you impressions that seem very real. And if you're going by impressions and if they can't be backed up by the Word of God, you could be led by the devil and think it's the Spirit of God. So how do you know? It'll always be in accordance and harmony with the Word. What is one sin that cannot be forgiven, according to the Bible? Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, makes us just uh, shudder to think about it. It says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It is possible that some people reach what they call the point of no return. If you're a helicopter pilot flying for the Navy and you're going out to do a rescue at sea, they got what they call the PNR. I'm a pilot. 
I don't fly, I have flown helicopters, but I just fly fixed wing aircraft. The PNR means point of no return. When you're going to rescue someone, they've calculated how much gas you're going to need to do the rescue and to get back, because it's not going to do anyone any good if you and your victim you've rescued crash into the ocean. Sometimes they've got to turn back when they're just within sight of somebody because they realize we can't reach them. We've gotten to that point of no return. They have to turn back for more fuel. And it's also sometimes that way in a person's life. You can continue to sin against the Holy Spirit and start turning down the volume so that you're just not hearing his voice anymore. Heard about this man in Scotland that he was walking along the beach. And this is a part of the world where the tide comes in very fast, very high. It's very powerful. And as he was taking a walk along the beach, he reached a spot where the beach met some cliffs, some very tall, steep cliffs. And as he's walking along, the tide had gone out. And he's looking at all the seashells or the, the starfish and the things that was fascinating to him. He came upon a sign and the sign said, turn back here. If you go any farther, you cannot escape the incoming tide. He said, he looked out and he saw, I don't see the, the sea's way out there. I'll have plenty of time to escape the incoming tide. True story. And he, he just kept walking and he lost track of time. And all of a sudden this tide started coming in. And he didn't realize how far he had gone picking up his shells and things. And he said, oh, I guess I better start back. But the tide in that part of the country at that time of year, it doesn't come slowly lapping. It comes in like a wave. And it started coming in. It was around his ankles and then his knees. And he's trying to run. It got up to his thighs. And you can't run very fast through water that deep. People on the cliffs watching him tried to help. And they had no rope to throw to him. And tragically, they watched until that man got washed into the cliffs and drowned. Because he had gone beyond that point of no return. Every time we sin, we are playing Russian roulette with eternity. We don't like to think about it, but sin is deadly. And the devil wants us to say, I'll just repent later, I'll repent later, I'll repent later. Now, don't underestimate the mercy of God. God will forgive you and forgive you and forgive you for years. He's very patient. But at some point, everybody reaches a point of no return if you're not saved. When you die, it's too late then to repent. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Since none of us knows the exact moment of our death, then you don't want to play with eternal life and grieve away the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean to commit the unpardonable sin? It means that you've continued to resist the Holy Spirit till you get to the point where you don't hear the Holy Spirit. You've lost that sense of conviction. And um, it's a dangerous thing. God is patient. He said, whoever speaks a word against the Son, it will be forgiven. All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven to the children of men. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that you just say something terrible and you curse the Holy Spirit. God's very patient in that way. But it means, blasphemy means you continue to resist and to turn away from the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a a couple of ways that uh, a person can sin. Some is... To resist the Holy Spirit, some is to call something the Holy Spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. A lot of people that are labeling something the Holy Spirit and it's not the Holy Spirit, that's almost as dangerous as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because it can mislead people. I've heard a lot of people say, well, the Spirit is leading me. And I look at what their decisions are and say, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. I've actually sat in marital counseling with a couple. They were both married to other people. And they said, you know, we're married but our marriages are miserable. They were mistakes. We were young. But we feel like God has brought us together. We have peace. 
the Spirit is telling us that we should divorce our spouses and get married. I said, Spirit's telling you that? So the Word is telling me something different. But they convinced themselves that it was the Spirit telling them that. So I think you have to be very careful about blaming the Holy Spirit for every impression you get. How many of you have turned on TV and the television says, the Spirit is telling me this. Spirit, there's somebody out there, you've got pain in your back. Can I see your hands right now? How many of you have pain in your back? <clears throat> you don't have to 